Hey, everybody, you are listening to A Smart Guy, A Dumb Guy. I'm your resident nerd and smart guy, Johnny Morrison. And with us, as always, is our co-host, musician, filmmaker, and dumb guy, Christian Serge. Hey, everybody. Each week and now for the next 23 minutes or so, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. And sometimes Johnny will say, all sides of the intellectual spectrum. Yeah, which I guess doesn't actually make any sense. Both sides makes more sense. But also, both sides and the all the things in between is what I'm trying to infer, you know? Yeah, I've seen like what a ninja does to two like pairs. Yep. Mashes them up and it's like, it get, gets this kind of like puree. So you have joined the Smart Guy, Dumb Guy puree podcast. When you said ninja, you meant like the ninja blender. I thought you meant like a ninja. <laughs> Like a, real, like a real ninja. <laughs> I was very confused for a second. Yeah, I had a ninja once, and he had a sword, and he had... No, no ninjas here. Uh, <laughs> if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome to the podcast. This is episode number six. Last week, we talked to Patrick Lovell, the producer of the new docuseries called The Con, and it was a gripping episode. The man talked a lot. It was great, though. He's, he's wicked smart. The documentary is awesome. It was a good conversation. Yeah. Let's get into it today. We uh, have two subjects that have just happened and are kind of right in the forefront of culture and politics. And I, I went back and forth today between, do we talk about this 15-year-old kid who at 12 years old was using Minecraft and convincing his 12 and 8 and 9-year-old Minecraft components or op- opponents to pay him money to create worlds for him. And uh-huh. he was making a ton of money. And then he went ahead and broke into Biden's Twitter account <laughs> and o- Obama's Twitter account and told people, made a tweet and said, uh, if you send me Bitcoin, I'll double it. And so at 17 years old, he's finally been caught and he's got 30 felonies against him. Wow. And it was either that or it was talking about a conspiracy theory. <laughs> what did you, which one did you choose? Well, I love conspiracy theories. So while, while the 17-year-old hacker is a great story and it's not about politics, it's about this guy who will probably will never hear from again and will never go to jail. And maybe he is a conspiracy theory and he'll work for the FBI and teach people how to hack into Twitter. That's probably right. But I read recently... And I really haven't read a whole lot about this. And so I am coming from this as kind of a dumb perspective. There's something called Quanon or K-Anon or QAnon. 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 Of course it's QAnon because that <laughs> sounds, to me, that sounds more terrorist than Quanon. <laughs> Quanon sounds like a really nice Mormon name. Like that you would meet your Quan- aunt Quanon. <laughs> Quanon, Quanon, stop being mean, Quanon. Yeah, Quanon and her, her sister, Quaylin, and their daughter, <laughs> Katelyn. Yes, uh, it is not a uh, Mormon family, and it does to me. Is, what is it? How, how do you say it again? Q-Anon. Q-Anon, okay. Because I've seen the, the signs that have the burning Q, mm-hmm. and I've read that it's the, a far right-wing... A group that believes that Satan is overpowering high-powered officials and that they also want sex trafficking of children to be, you know, uh, 
normal thing and that and that oh and that Hollywood's in on it. Why is mm-hmm. Hollywood in on it? Like they don't care. They don't want to be in the spotlight unless mm-hmm. they're in the movies. They don't they, they don't, <laughs> don't want to join Quanon. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> QAnon. QAnon. Oh Quanon. So in this article in the New York Times, it says over three years the far right conspiracy theory QAnon getting it, has spread from the outskirts of the internet into the mainstreams. And by next year, it will most likely make its way into Congress. Uh, QAnon supporter is almost sure to be elected after winning a Republican House primary runoff in Georgia this week. So we're seeing officials who believe in this conspiracy theory being elected into office. So my question after I read this article was, as humans, our inner desire, we we desire a lot, but we desire specifically to belong to something bigger than ourselves, whether mm. that's the universe or a, a group of people or an ideal. Mm. And so at what point does it cloud, does that belief of being something bigger, at what point does it cloud our vision for what really matters? Mm. Or does it really matter? Interesting. That's a great question. I think that in a lot of ways you've just named what is compelling about conspiracy theories, cults. Uh, I mean, in a lot of way, religion's participation generally is they provide, they provide a myth or a meaningful story of the universe and a community in which you get to be a part of. And there's a narrative of who you're for and who you're against and what part you get to play in that story. It makes sense of the things around you. And it, it provides like a comprehensive description of the universe that's understandable. And yet, I think also mm-hmm. with some like mystery and um, hidden dimensions in there and a thing to be a part of. I think that is one of the things that makes conspiracy so compelling, which is what you just named. I mean, I love movies. I'm a movie fan. I was talking the other day about uh, what are the four greatest movies. And I don't know. What do you think? What are the four greatest movies? The four greatest movies. You just put me on the spot. Uh, that is a very difficult question. I think the four greatest movies ever are number one, Tombstone. Number two, Armageddon. Number three, Interstellar. And number four, Pitch Perfect. Huh. Interesting choices. I mean, I'm not against them. So the reason why I like movies like that, and people can say, oh, you know, those are the dumbest movies, is that they take me away and give me something a little bit more to believe in. Hmm. I can believe in this magical or mystery, just like what you just named. Mm-hmm. And it kind of takes me away. And I, I want to be a part of that yeah. idea for 90 minutes or two hours or you know, however long the movie is. I think uh, when we were talking about Antifa and I look at, I want to say Quanon. When I look at Quanon, I, <laughs> I think, okay, this is the opposite of Antifa, right? Hmm. This organization. But unlike Antifa, QAnon has an organized group. It has mm-hmm. an organized image. It has an organized uh, saying. There's a sign of a Q burning, and it says WWG1WGA. Hmm. I thought it was like, what would Garth do? You know, but <laughs> it's not. It's like what we do, what we get for one, we get for all. And I'm, I'm sure I'm messing that up. Hmm. But it's this unifying statement. And so it's more than just a... A conspiracy theory. But I think a lot of people are looking at these people or the people who are in um, QAnon as kind of tea partiers. Like they're likening them unto mm. the tea parties. Mm. 
Yeah, it does feel like it's something different and bigger than Tea Party. Because I think even the people, like I've read a few articles, and The Atlantic actually did a really long piece on the prof. I think the article is called The Prophecies of Q a few weeks ago, which was a fascinating piece. It kind of starts from like its genesis and when we first see it rise with the man who went to the pizza parlor looking for the hidden pedophile ring and then kind of walks through the larger development of Q. And it was fascinating to to read. Like, it's far bigger than Tea Party was. It has, a, in some ways, like, a, it's beyond political boundaries. Like, people who would have considered themselves maybe Democrats at one point or Trump or Obama voters at one point have become part of QAnon. Um, so it's bigger than, I don't know, yeah, I don't think Tea Party is a way, is an appropriate way to frame it up. One time you taught me a, a, a phrase called master signifier. Yep. Is this one of that? Is this one of those things? Oh, interesting. I mean, yes, in that there is there is master signifiers within within Q Anonymous. So master signifiers are a thing that exists within um, an ideology. And so Q Anon is an ideology, this ideology that there is a war basically against evil. Trump is the primary person who's waging that war or, you know, I think they refer to him as Q plus. He's the primary person that's waging the war against this like syndicate of evil pedophiles. So that's the ideology. Here's the people that we're against. Here's the people that we're for. Um, Here's the framing structure within that. And then a master signifier would be like, what are the banners that it waves and floats and, you know, uses as a rallying cry around it? Yeah, I think that one of the things that COVID has done, uh, amongst many others, mm-hmm. is it has given us more time to search the internet. It's given yeah. us more time to take our Facebook followers and get pissed off at them and mm-hmm. unfollow them and create the ones in our little group mm-hmm. of, of our own little universe believers. Mm-hmm. And... I've, I've read statistics, uh, and I, I haven't been able to quote them at this point, but I've read, and they may be fake news, but I've read statistics that say that our conspiracy groups or these cultish groups are getting larger because mm-hmm. of the idea that we can stay home and really kind of dive into this. Mm-hmm. And then with all this pent-up energy, we just mm-hmm. get angrier and angrier. And with that dissonance, there is that moment of catharsis where we want to go out and do something and people are putting on masks and toting guns and, mm-hmm. and yelling at people and, and threatening people and then doing some violence. So yeah, is that the point? Oh, interesting. I think that's a great point. Like I think ideologies, this is, <clears throat> this might get me in trouble, but Marx would say that ideologies come from um, a political trauma. Something something negative happens in a political sense, right? And so it's what you just named, that there's all this pent-up rage and anger which goes into constructing the ideology of the world around you. And then that's what frames who you're for, who you're against. It's what uh, aims you in a kind of a political sense. And I think you're right. Like I think one of the reasons it's so co- there's so many conspiracy theories now, yes, is social media and the, the way it makes it so much more accessible, but also that the stories that used to be compelling to human history are no longer compelling or present. Mm. Like the American story isn't compelling to people anymore, right? Like there's no unified American story. No, there's a Democrat story. There's a Republican story. There's not a unified American story. Religious stories aren't compelling anymore. Like it's not that compelling to be a Christian because the gospel, whatever it is that we believe feels for most people, reductionistic and kind of empty. Mm. And so you have this trauma and you need a narrative that makes sense of it, that makes sense of the world. And in some ways, 
QAnon is providing that for people, a more compelling narrative to make sense of their experiences in the world around them. It's more compelling than the story of do masks work or not? Do you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it makes sense of that, right? Like it's all of a sudden do masks work or not get pulled into the story. Now it's not really about masks anymore. Mm. It's about this larger myth narrative that's, that's helping people understand their place in the world and the evil around them and how they navigate, how they fight it. Okay. So that reminds me of the story. So I, I grew up as a Las Vegas musician and um, it's about 1999 and, and we were playing uh, a lot of cover tunes. I, I had three bands in order to try to make a, a living, a, an original band where we play, I don't know, twice a month. And then I was in a country band. We played, uh, you know, another t- <laughs> two times a week. And then I was in a pop band and we played, you know, four nights a week. So we were playing every night. We were playing with this one guy. His name was Eric Poe in Desert Star. And I love Eric. Um, he, if, he's, if he's listening to this, I love you, Eric. But one day I decided that I wanted to gather up the band, that we weren't being treated right because it wasn't my band. And we thought we were the, the um, we were being treated unfairly and we were focusing on all these little things, we're focusing mm-hmm. on all the, the little things that were wrong with being just in the band. And, you know, I was a big original uh, music guy and I was like, I want to do originals and I, I you know, I want to do this. So we, we protested one night right before the show. We said, Eric, we don't want to play. We don't want to be your band anymore unless you pay us more, unless we get you know better rooms, unless we you know get to ride in the front of the bus, you know. And he looked at us, and he paused for a moment, and he had a picture. He had the bigger picture in his mind. Mm. The bigger picture was, well, they booked me. They didn't book you guys, but we didn't know that. So he paused for a moment. And he said, "Oh, this is a bummer." He said, "Well, you're fired. <laughs> I'll go do the show by myself." So then all of a sudden we were left without any gig. What, you know, any gig at all. And he hired a new band and we spent a lot of time thinking about our decision. <laughs> we eventually came up with another band and we, we did some, some fun gigs. But the point I'm trying to make is what you just called out is that we lost quitting the band with all these little things. I don't know. Somehow the idea of that he was the enemy made mm. sense of all these little things. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's totally true. And, and the, the truth is it doesn't, it doesn't have to be true. Mm-hmm. There's a writer I really like named Slavoj Zizek um, who tells a story of this really strange moment in France when um, printing apprentices revolted against their like teachers and trainers, like in their you know, printing, like old school printing where you have like the letters and you put them in the thing and you do mm. like the Gutenberg press or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they revolted because they're being treated really poorly. But the way they revolted is they killed cats that belonged to the aristocracy. Wow. And it's, you're like, you're kind of asking you like hear that moment. And you're like, why? Like, why would you do that? Those are the French. Who did that? Yeah, yeah, this is this is a French story. Of course, it's a French story. Yeah, killing cats. Uh, You're just feeding into my love of the French. <laughs> Not that long before the French Revolution, right? So it's like a maybe a pre moment. They go and kill these cats, and and Zizek's point is that the cats are representative of the aristocracy who these printing apprentices see holding them down. But mm-hmm. the cats are not actually the ire. Don't don't deserve the ire of the printing apprentices. But it's representative. It's a scapegoat. And that's where you, you unleash violence on a scapegoat. And that's what, to use your word, 
from earlier, like that's what produces catharsis. Like as though you've Mm -hmm. done something to numb this feeling that I'm not getting what I need or want. But the cats are literally not responsible. They Mm. represent what is responsible in that sense. So it doesn't have to be true. It can be true, but it doesn't have to be true of who's actually causing the pain. Extremist groups of any denomination or of cult or organization, they're not groups that I want to support. I love conspiracy theories, but I, I don't want any violence. I mean, you, you follow politics and culture really well. Um, you are the, most, the hippest guy I've ever seen and the hippest pastor I know. What are your thoughts about QAnon? Like, you, you must know a lot about that. Um, I have read a handful of articles on QAnon and have tried to stay up on it. I think one thing that it's very difficult to, to stay on, like it is, it is ever evolving. The prophecies of QAnon, which there's like prophecies that are being dispersed through um, like the darker places of the internet, like 8chan or whatever. Um, those are changing kind of constantly. And so it's a very, it's like a, it's an open canon uh, belief system. So it's changing constantly. So it's very hard to stay up on. Um, but I think it's a, I think, I, I think in a lot of ways it is kind of frightening. Um, I think the FBI has labeled it a potential domestic terrorist threat. We've seen the way that it's driven, um, like the, uh, the, the man who walked into the pizza parlor, like brandishing his AR 15 to look for the ring of, of like children enslaved by Hillary Clinton and John Podesta. Like, I think that there's like real danger in that and in the way that it's rewriting the story of reality and, and, and drawing lines between who is a good guy, who is a bad guy, who is a villain, who is a hero. I think those are really dangerous. Um, and then I go back to the things that we talked about earlier, which is like, I, I also think that there's something really heartbreaking and tragic in the way in which the stories that should give our lives meaning have so failed us that this is more compelling. And I think that's the church's fault. I think that's politicians fault. I think that's religious leaders and experts and um, like social leaders faults so that like our stories are so shitty that this is the thing that is compelling to us now, that this is what gives us meaning and our life purpose and value and hope. Like that should require us to do some really deep reflection on what we're mm-hmm. offering the world. Mm-hmm. Well said. <laughs> Cause what else is going to disrupt it? Right. Except a more compelling picture of the world and a more compelling picture of how to interact with the world and make sense of the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read this stuff and I get fired up and then I just feel empty. I'm like this mm-hmm. is, the, yeah, you, you were right. That This is the story. Like this is what we, we're, is giving us meaning. Yeah. I think that's why sometimes I think it's silly. And even the, even me who loves a conspiracy theory. Yeah. I think it should really challenge us to ask the question of like, what is the stories that animate our own life? And what is the, like I'm, I'm a pastor and so I'm a religious person. So like, is the story that I'm offering as like a church person compelling to the world around us? And then I, but I think it's everybody needs to ask that question. Like what are the, what is the story that makes sense of life? And is it actually compelling? Does it create a sense of wonder in us? Does it give us curiosity about the people around us and a way to engage in love? Cause if it doesn't do those things, we should probably get rid of it. Hmm. I vote for getting rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get rid of Antiva and Quanon. <laughs> and and Quiley and the whole fam. The Quas- whole family. Quasin, 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 Quas
It's too much. Um, mm-hmm. You quote you quoted uh, French and often quote French philosophers. Last words for me on this is I feel like that in many groups we lose what really matters. Mm-hmm. And in the words of a German poet, you know, there like we that? go, Charles Bukowski. Nice. He says we're all going to die, all of us. What a circus! That alone should make us love each other, but it doesn't. We are terrorized and flattened by trivialities. We are eaten up by nothing. Hmm. I hope that uh, followers of QAnon can break away and really find what really matters and not be violent, but make a change together and maybe love each other. I don't know. I'm I'm getting a little emotional, but I think that's what really matters. Yeah. But speaking of being held down, there's an article that we're going to talk about today of... Kamala Harris. Yep. Who is she going to be held down? <laughs> yeah. So this is an article that I found um, from the Atlantic, and the article focuses on Kamala Harris as she's been um, appointed to Joe Biden's ticket as the VP nominee. But more than anything else, it actually talks about how culture writes women in power, like how media writes women in power, how movies write women in power, how television shows write women in power. And so it works through pop culture references like House of Cards and Veep and another show I'd never heard of, Commander in Chief, and talks about how those women were presented. Oh, and the first, the very first reference in the article, which I thought was fun, was Air Force One, um, Harrison Ford's movie with Glenn Close as his vice presidential nominee. And like, that's the first picture. And then kind of walks through these different pictures of women in positions of power, often actually vice presidential positions of power, um, and how they're presented. And then it starts to ask some questions about, well, what does that mean about our belief in women in power, how we view women in power? And it got me thinking, which lots of people are wrestling through this question, which are, what are the cultural perceptions that we bring to Kamala Harris as she's just been nominated as the vice presidential um, pick for Joe Biden, where do those assumptions come from and what does it take to change those kinds of assumptions? But yeah, what mainly are, is the perception that we have of women in power? I mean, I love what is happening in movies and television shows featuring women in power. I was just, you know, reading through when women had the right to vote. It was like the 1920s. And before then they were considered uh, their husband's property. Hmm. So if we're talking about women in power, it, it has not been something that we see have seen a lot, support a lot, hmm. just in our last generation, right? Like hmm. my grand or my grandfather's generation, he was alive when women couldn't vote, mm-hmm. didn't have a voice at all, and were considered property. Hmm. You have certain pictures of women in culture who have in positions of power, and they're often written as um, accessories to male positions mm-hmm. of power. Mm-hmm. Or you go to like the, I think the, the final conversation they had in the article was about um, Veep, which is a uh, Julia Lewis Dreyfus, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and how she's portrayed very different because she is ambitious. And, and that's an interesting conversation already because that's one of the primary criticisms that's been levied against Kamala Harris is that she is quote unquote ambitious and that is somehow uh, a detractor from her being in a, from being the vice presidential nominee is that she is quote unquote ambitious. I think that she is being bid as an accessory to Biden to pull in votes. That doesn't mean that I'm not excited 
that sure. he pulled her in because I am not a Joe Biden fan. Sure. Uh, someone from the media said, "Hey, how is it going to feel if you get nom- You know, if you get uh, the vice president seat, how will it feel to continue on Obama's legacy?" And she go, "Obama's legacy. I have my own legacy." Mm-hmm. So she is responding in that veep strong sense, and I'm that does something for me in a good way. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think. I mean, it's fascinating. Like, she should be able to. Like, no one. This is an old thing to say, but no one criticizes Joe Biden for wanting to be president of the United States. Sure. And no one is using Joe Biden's ambition against him as a reason that he shouldn't be president of the United States. But it is all of a sudden a thing that we throw against Kamala Harris when she's nominated to be vice president as though because she wanted to be president that she is no longer qualified to be vice president, which is, you know, never a criticism that gets thrown against men. So I think that's one of the things that like she'll have to, that is going to be pressed against her culturally is this narrative of what is appropriate, quote unquote, for women in a position of power to do, how it's appropriate to act, how they're handle and hold power, which is an impossible role for her to fill. Like she just, there's, there's, it's a standard that doesn't, can't be met. Well, as long as she doesn't act like Sarah Palin, (laughs) there's an article out there that says the 55 things you need to know about Kamala Harris. There was a, a shooting of two black men by the police and she chose not to prosecute them after doing her research. And she got a lot of flack for that. Mm -hmm. And then on the opposite side, she, you know, was able to criticize or talk about busing children into schools to give them a better chance in life. So, and then she doesn't back down from those. She's like, yeah, I have my reasons and here they are. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of politicians that I hope we can elect that, have a common sense. And unfortunately, we live in this misogynistic America. Yes, I use the word misogynistic, this mm-hmm. male privileged world that is going to judge her every word. And so I say, go for it. I say, be strong and mm-hmm. try to break those, those barriers. She has every right to do that and she should be able to. There's a phrase, um, the male gaze in, that is often used in philosophy to describe like, White male gaze, this gets to your point of misogyny, gets to determine in our culture where people sit and are and how they're perceived. And so Kamala is in so many ways run through the grid of like that white male gaze of what her power and her use of power means for like the men in power around her, what it says to them, right? That's the grid that she's run through versus men who are in power, which is to be ambitious is like a good thing. But when a woman is ambitious, it's a negative thing. Like who gets to do the judgment on that? Oh, it's a white dude gets to do the judgment on that. Right. And so it'll be, I just think it'll be so interesting to see like, how does that play out for her alongside of Joe Biden? It shouldn't, she shouldn't have to deal with that. It's wrong in every way, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and how that impacts her and how it impacts Biden and even the campaign altogether. Cause we're not over it yet. You know, just because a woman has been nominated for the vice presidential pick, we're not over, um, Patriarchy. No, I don't think so. I think that every cultural perception that we can think of is going to be thrown at her, especially after this current administration. Like, it's going to be a really, I think, a dirty fight, and we're going to hear a lot of horrible things from their, his, their opponent. And, I, and mm-hmm. I, I hope that that will uh, raise light to a lot of these issues and people will stand up to it. Yeah, I hope so too. I think my hope is that it's revealing uh, and disruptive. 
but yeah, you've already seen it. Like the similar criticisms that were applied to Hillary have been applied to Kamala. She's been referred to as nasty, which is not a criticism that gets applied to Joe Biden. He's not called nasty, right? Which is an epitaph that is reserved specifically for women. So it's interesting. Like, yeah, I mean, it's tragic and interesting already how that's, uh, that's happening to her, but you're right. Like I hope that it is a revealing and uh, kind of disruptive moment to see a woman in that position and to disrupt the way misogyny gets to code and categorize how a woman is supposed to perform in that space. She was raised uh, both Baptist and Hindu, I believe. That's right. And, you know, this isn't a religious podcast, but you are a reverend. Mm -hmm. And uh, Christianity probably has something to say about misogyny. It does have, I I think it does have a lot to say. I think tragically, uh, American evangelicalism has been the, one of the primary uh, supporters and propagators of misogyny in the United States of America that we've been so linked with it. So I think like one hand you have like, what, what does Christianity done culturally in the United States? So it's made it worse in a lot of ways, but I think that scripture fundamentally opposes patriarchy and misogyny in the way that Jesus is, in the way that the gospel crosses boundaries, in the way that it dissolves existing power structures in the way that it forces us to ask a question about, um, Here's where scripture is pushing and, and challenging those boundaries, and it's supposed to go even further than that. Yeah, how hard is it to go to find a church, uh, any kind of Christian church denomination that uh, values women as much as they value men? Oh, it's I mean, it's so hard. So hard. Just because you see it on the theological description of the website doesn't mean that in practice they value women and practice true mutuality. Like, there's a difference, right? Like, you can have a theological statement that's like, we believe that women are equal to men in all ways, but that does not mean that's the practice of the leadership structure or the power structures, the operating structures of the church. You bring to light something really interesting. If, if that's the story of the Christian church, right? It's, the website says it, but it's really hard to find it. I think it's like 62% of the world claims to be members of a Christian congregation. That's mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So, if that's our, our first bar of misogyny, or if that's our first mm-hmm. bar of that, that's, that's a big bar. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then put on the, the other 38% and of people who may have similar beliefs or whatever. And then uh, what about all the other issues? Mm-hmm. You know, all the companies who it's hard to find uh, a director or a senior leadership person that is female. So I think, mm-hmm. she's, got a, I think she's got a lot ahead of her, but some challenges. Yeah, she does. And challenges that she shouldn't have to face and that no woman should have to face in local church contexts or local business contexts or political contexts. And that's true regardless of what you think of Kamala. If you're listening to this podcast and you're like more conservative and you don't like Kamala's policies, like you should still be able to recognize that she's about to step, she's stepping into something that is so hard and so difficult and it shouldn't be, it should not be hard and difficult for her. Hmm. And the fact that she's in it will actually be disruptive and create space, hopefully going forward for it to be less difficult again for someone mm. else. Well, I've had people ask me, say, hey, you just barely get into these subjects and you never really answer the question. And so the point here of this podcast is to spark bigger conversations. And so the questions that we've asked today, the first one is with the right extremist group uh, QAnon, is our inner desire to belong something bigger? Does it cloud our vision for what really matters? Mm. I don't know. I think that's for um, you to decide. And final words on our question, what are the cultural perceptions that Kamala Harris will have to deal with as a VP pick? 
and what will it take for our culture to change its view on misogynistic power? Hmm. Are you, are you asking me that? Or are you just leaving that hanging in the air? I don't know. I am asking. <laughs> I mean, I think one is that all of us have to begin to ask that question of ourselves, of how we perceive Kamala, of how we perceive all women in power. And then we need to figure out what it looks like to deconstruct what we think leadership is supposed to look like. What is, what are the metaphors that we apply to Kamala and that look different than when we apply to Joe? And what is the metaphors that we apply to the women around us and the women above us and below us and the structures that we apply? Those things are so are, are almost always implicitly patriarchal and we don't know it because it's the water in which we swim. Well, that ends our episode of smart guy, dumb guy. Hey, come back again next week. Uh, if you like our conversations and hit subscribe, it really helps other people find the podcast. If you want to know about almost Dr. Johnny Morris and go to johnnyis.com or myself, uh, you can find a little bit about me at Christian surge.com. Hey, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See you next time. You have been listening to a smart guy and a dumb guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.